We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. Let no idea grows from mewling striped cum to teeth at your throat tiger without a little help, some guidance, and a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. All right then, folks, help me in welcoming Jared Surf of herebetigers.com. Jared is a writer and storytelling coach, among many other things, and I'm going to let him tell you all about his what's and why's. Jared, welcome to Sonatotem. Hi, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me today. As you said, I'm a storyteller first and foremost. I've worn plenty of other hats from content strategist and PR marketing specialist and so on and journalist interview over the years. But fundamentally, I help folks teach, entertain, or guide people in their market, audience, and tribe. Those who might, those who like, and most certainly those who provide. And how did you how did you transition from creating to helping others create or or as well as helping others create? You know, it's fascinating. I started writing very, very young. My first short story was one sentence long and had only one line at the end. The rest of the book was do you remember those printer pages with the corrugated sides? Certainly, yeah. Dot matrix, yeah. I would bind those by hand to make books and draw on them. So I had illustrated these knights and peasants and sorcerers and all other kinds of people from medieval time putting together a castle throughout the entirety of the book, like a flip book. And at the very end, it collapses and there's the caption and then the castle died. <laughs> How old were you? Let's see. I did the first poem at five. That book was probably around the same time. I was telling stories a little earlier than that. My folks were journalists, so they would type up everything. The first poem is called There's a Panda in My Shoe, which was, that's right, I had dictated that to my folks at around two, two and a half, <laughs> because they were they were not ready for me as a child. When I found out my brother was being, was coming, was on the way, I looked at them square at the eye, two and a half, but, and said, but aren't I enough? A precocious child, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> Premature, let's say, yes. I was, was born two months early. My folks called me impatient. <laughs> Sounded like you were ready to go straight out the gate, as it were. Yeah. And you said your folks were journalists. So were mm -hmm. you aware of, I mean, not so much that they brought their work home, but was was writing all around you? Oh, absolutely. My, my dad was a photographer, a reporter, and a journalist. My mom worked in the news media and eventually moved over to the PR marketing and social branch of it where she stayed for most of her time. But they were, for a fair amount of my childhood, independent creatives. So that whole environment of shared work, life, and space is something that seemed, I suppose, normal to me at the time while they were comprising and doing the things they had to do for assignments. So when, when did it become sort of just something that you you did and your folks did and it was it was just a natural uh, expression of creativity when did it turn into like may, well maybe i'm going to you know i'm i'm not going to go off and be a doctor or a lawyer i'm going to i'm going to also pursue this uh you know uh rather than rebel against the parents <laughs> i'm going to do this creative thing as well when did that kind of start to be a path for you 
funny, my grandmother always wanted the trifecta of lawyer, doctor, and accountant in the family. The classic Jewish trifecta, as it were. <laughs> and I had a gift for speech and public speaking, so she thought I would lean toward at least one of those. But most of my childhood, we would tell and dictate stories. My folks loved all tables. I would always make these vast, complicated histories of all the toys I possessed that had nothing to do with whatever lore. And mind you, most toys in the 80s would not come with lore attached outside of right. Transformers, G.I. Joe, the ones that were designed to sell the product itself. So if you had little blue alien toys and little green alien toys, it was up to you at three or four to create the universe that they were alive in. And I would say somewhere in middle school, I had a writing assignment to be able to tell a story from scratch. And my folks impressed upon me then that I could say whatever I liked. There was no limit, no bound or line that I had to feel confined by. And that's both weird and delightful and kind of terrifying because then, well, what space are you in if there's no space to define? But they helped me kind of work down the ideas of, okay, well, what is this person like? What do they want? Where are they? Why are they there? What are they doing in that space? Going from the simple details, the specifics, to what that would reveal over time. And I'm not surprised that my style or my, my process, I would say, has changed that much. I think it was less of them, per se, just imparting that to me, but also recognizing how, still to this day, I think my a good deal of my work is subconscious as I am creating. And part of the work itself, I find, is in recognizing what of that I should just let be and in what space that needs to needs to have in order to survive. And there's a good deal, I would say, both for me as for the people I've been and lived with over time, when it comes to negotiating what that space is like, that I can't be or help or do or say right now because I can't actually hold the conversation you want me to have while I'm listening to the characters in my mind speak at the same time. And that might sound strange, right? That there's two people or multiple people alive in my head conversing and that I can't also engage with you on a phone call or something else like. But that world, that inner world is so rich and full that I am as immersed in what's happening and what they're thinking and feeling. I am so immersed in what's happening and think they're thinking and feeling that it's impossible for me to provide that attentive outside of this as well. And that's, I think, kind of the conundrum to my work as a creative, that to tell and share the story well, I had to be so deeply in it. But how did I also find a way to take all of that richness and give it a shape that was simple, that was easy, that was concise? I think probably I struggled with that most of my childhood up until college, where I took a first writing class, an actual course in how to tell stories with Jason Arkert, who had studied under Juno Diaz and a number of other, George Saunders, a number of wonderful writers. I'll never forget what Arkert said there. He said, I'm going to teach you how to write, not by having you come up with character backgrounds and histories and facts and the like. We're just going to start with the story so that I can find how you build and structure them, how you express your voice, and what within that needs to be revised or refined. I want to back up just a little bit because I, I'm curious about, like you mentioned that the the sort of the, how do I... I'm going to put it this way. How do I interact in the world uh, at the same time as all these these characters are, are are vying for for attention and energy? Why do you think that inner world exists for you in the first place? Can you can you go back to uh, beyond your you know creativity just being in the house? It could have manifested in any way. Why do you think storytelling 
became such a intrinsic part of your of your personality and, and your thought process really i I learned to speak at a a young age. I was full sentences before I think about ten months, and I also learned music roughly around the same time. I'm not the best performer. I'm proficient, I would say, at some instruments, although it's been quite a long time. But for me, music and sound, through sound and writing, are inextricably linked. When I craft sentences, when I hear people speak, there's a rhythm and a meter to it. I struggled, for instance, with grammar for a long time until my folks showed to me that it's the same as musical notation and how thoughts and ideas are arranged in order to arrive in a certain way. And that was that was a key to a door for me, something I'd struggled with, this artificiality, this rule set that had to be applied to everything without making any genuine sense. And I'm also numerolexic and mildly dyslexic, so it took me some time to, as much as I taught myself to read, to adhere to the way things are supposed to for most folks be. You know, I did math all my equations backwards, which drove my teachers crazy, but for me, it made things easier because I could outline and see how things went from the small to the large. And I would do mathematical proofs in ways that didn't adhere to what they had assigned to us, but they arrived at the answer. So I suppose in that sense, I've always been kind of a diagonal thinker, not linear, and definitely not static. I'll give this as a tool I use for the folks I teach. When you are first trying to capture however that thing inside your mind is, so that you can then transcribe it into music, into writing, into what other creative means you have of expressing what, what's inside. For me, I found the audio recorder was an ideal tool because I speak much faster than I write. And it also allowed me to hear how I am when I'm in that state of mind, which is not at all like how I am when I'm analytical, when I'm trying to solve something for someone else. And I do take delight in both of those, which is why in my work now, for instance, as much as I enjoy creating, I also love helping other folks find what they'll make. The process of recording, though, how I write, of listening and hearing how I speak and craft a scene, how it's not at all linear, but I will talk about things in parallel. Dialogue scene will be, dialogue will be recursive until I arrive at the exact thing people are trying to say or or feel or express in that until I reach the beat that's missing when I first said it that initial time. I learned that none of my creative process is straightforward. It is all constantly rolling, building upon itself. So I learned to signpost. Okay, we're rolling back, moving forward. This leads from this place to that. So that when I'm listening as an editorial person, I know what refers to what. But simple act of just hearing how my mind works and how I think and what if that makes sense to me then and doesn't later allowed me to revise and refine it so that I could kind of communicate between the person who's inside that world that's alive in the mind and the one who is outside trying to provide it for other folks to find. And those aren't two different people, but they are two entirely different ways of viewing the same thing. So it behooved me internally to find some means that for the two of those states to be able to reach some kind of middle ground. <laughs> that took a long time, as you can imagine. <laughs> Well, and that's that's a lot of of and and it's fascinating, you know, the 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 your figuring out kind of the particulars of how your own mind works and and working around and and turning the dyslexia and whatnot into strengths and figuring out how to turn those to tools. But I'm I'm still curious is why fiction, why storytelling, why creating imaginary characters and and whatnot as opposed to 
more factual journalism or, you know, things like that? Why, why stories? Is there, do you, have you been able to figure out sort of a root cause as to, to why that's the venue? So fiction or not, stories do the same thing. They excite us if they're good, but they compel, inspire, and drive us toward a better life if they're great. And I've read and told and studied quite a lot of things that were fictional and not. And fundamentally, part of why I find and allows me to teach this now, the things that make a great story great remain the same, regardless of whether they're fiction or not. Medium will affect how it is delivered and shaped the ways in which it is conveyed. But what makes that story great is the same. And I did for a long time focus primarily on third person writing, primarily on nonfiction when I wanted to express a thought or reflect or analyze something that I experienced. So I would say probably for the majority of my adolescence into college, that's where my work remained in some short story, a lot of nonfiction otherwise, and some poetry on the side. And when I went to college and took that first writing class uh, with Jason Ocker, he gave us this assignment, as he was often wont to do, where he would put a prompt on the board. Could be anything. It could be two words. You draft it and nothing else besides. And you would have 10, 15, 20 minutes to write, and then perhaps he'd call on you to share what came to mind. And I forget the exact words, but say something to the effect of, you're a building. <laughs> that was the prompt. <laughs> I don't know why, but I started writing the point of view of this house that was on fire, this church that was on fire. And of course, you have to wonder why. <laughs> They're usually not. <laughs> what led to this point in time? And I started to see the people inside it, Adam and his mother and father, and what kind of life they had. And it was somewhat symbolic at the time. Some of my classmates used to say that I wrote in watercolor, more impression than final details at the time, than lines. More impression than lines is probably the way to say it back then. But Ockert looked at me after I wrote that, and he said, there's something here that you need to try. And when I'm a short story writer, let me do that. So I wrote what was the first story at the time for the book now. Here's a great example, honestly, of how my mind works. Adam and his family live in this small sanctuary in this church in the valley of the mountains in the small village in the remote, let's say something like the Himalayas, or a place that's quiet and reserved, hidden from everywhere else. And I had to hand that short story in at the very end. It goes to his life at 10, and ultimately why the place burns down at the end. And when I had to name it, I struggled so terribly. What do I call this short story? I don't know. Uh, the Valley, right? Because it's about a family that lives in a house in a valley. That's creative, isn't it? And then I handed it in. But a couple of days later, I sat down because something was eating in me. I knew the valley was just the first surface layer of it. And I went, yay, though I walked through the Valley of the Shadow. That's Psalm 23, looked it up, pulled up a, I think, New King James version of that, pulled up the copy of the short story, and read through them together. And every piece of symbolism and imagery in the psalm was in the story. <laughs> the shadows of the parishioners walking down the hill at time, the cup of the anointing toward the end, all of it, the table I prepare as the parents are fighting above for something the child doesn't quite get, it was all there. And I looked at my roommate and I said what I had found to him. And he said, you always do that. That's how you write. <laughs> these, these influences, and they, they, they bubble up. If I had tried to craft a short story in which I would etch the details of a psalm, it would have been artificial and 
rough and gross and weird and not anything other than a piece of artifact and anything other than a piece of performance work. But I had to learn as I continue to tell the story of Adam and his family and the other protagonist, Connor, and everything they've gone through together and this tale over time, to accept that I would not know all of the truths of the world story and characters. I would just find and know enough of them, and those would lead me to the rest. That if I could let go, right, of everything I thought the story was and could and should and had to be, and hold on to only what I knew was true of those three, world story and character at the time, and then built from those, saw what was revealed, saw how those fit together, saw how they led to what inevitably must occur and why. It didn't per se become an easier work on the whole. There was still quantity of stuff to write, but the inside of my head was much quieter. That's interesting. So I have, I have a couple of thoughts on this, or questions. Uh, first of all, why do you think, I mean, your subconscious was working through your pen, basically, the, to... And only later you, you discovered, like you said, the connection between the valley and and the psalm. What was had that psalm had a particular meaning to you, other than you know it's one of the ones that just about everybody knows, you know more or less. When I was writing a summaries, we're all supposed to write summaries or log lines of what the book is like, so that people who aren't us can look and go, oh, I might want to read that. You know, the back of book. Mm-hmm. Or the thing people go when they look up on Netflix, what the adaptation is, and decide, sure, okay, sure. yeah, I want to try that. <laughs> the first line of that is, Here Be Tigers is a tale of memory loss and the flow of time. Mostly, though, it's about two friends, Adam and Connor, one who's owed a wish and one who wants to save a life and how they hope to make things right. But the tale, they're in as older roots than either know, and soon they find themselves confronted by the things they've tried before, both in the war where they first met and in the one last journey that they undertake to find their home. But that first sense, though, tale of memory, loss, and time, death, recursion, memory, I are, I think, things that I always, in fiction or not, write about. Even in my short stories in college at the time, I would reflect upon how we'd constructed the worlds that we were inside of. Or I know for the last short story I wrote, the, I had had a godmother who died many years before under very strange and mysterious circumstances. She literally disappeared from our lives for, I want to say, a decade, only to first receive a call one day that she had died of Lou Gehrig's disease in some hospital in the city. How old were you when that happened? 14 or 15. Okay. And the twist here, of course, is that we got the call. I found out a year later she had died. I only knew there was a call and that it was a bad conversation. Right. And I had to wait a year to know why. And I'm not of the school of writing where everything that happens to the writer becomes the book. I think people go a little too firmly into that and try to read everything in a writer's life or history into what they write. But I would say that for most of my life, those themes of death, time, and memory have been prevalent. They've been in the history of my family. They were things I could see and know and smell and be aware of very young. And they made th- they they were changes. They were permanent changes to the world I knew. They made things a different truth. How did that make you feel? You know, it's weird. As a precocious child, you have the capacity to try to make sense of things, even if you're not great at it at all times. So there's this urge, right, to want to know why things are the way they are, even if fundamentally you don't have enough information or means to acquire or understand or appreciate it. But you also more often than not know than folks think. You know more than what people think or believe you can and should. So there's this tension of who they think you're supposed to be like this, you know, why can't you just go play in the dirt? 
and the child who calls people on their shenanigans at three and four and five, who at 14 asked my father, why do I exist? And he struggled with how to answer that because that's not an answer someone else can provide you with. <laughs> right. There's, you know, the fundamentals of how I came here. That's one thing. But why should I exist? So why do you? Well, I struggled in school at the time because I didn't have an answer to that. And the one I had been working off of to make other people happy, to get good grades, et cetera, failed me. That was all a thing I was doing for someone else. And the writing, when I went into college, was something I did for myself. It was a world and a place that existed, as with the music, as with every... I've been painting since I was a child as well, acrylics, watercolor. I've been drawing since that time. So for me, the idea that there was something that I was trying to find a shape to has been with me mm. for most of my life. And this will sound weird, but I've spoken about this in a couple other interviews I've been on recently. But at one point in the book, Adam and Connor are traveling to... Adam and Connor, the two main characters, are traveling to a place they'd rather not. So to pass the time, they're sharing stories of things that are more enjoyable or otherwise interesting. Until eventually in the process of that, someone cries and starts to ask, well, what was your home like? And Adam tells Connor this fictional tale of a child who lived in the small village in the mounds and a place called the Village of No Tears. And how he demanded again and again to his mother and father to see what the rest of the world was like. The, the village where everyone was angry, the village where everyone laughed all the time, where they slept and they dreamt, and they kept on saying, you don't have to, isn't here fine. Of course, he's a child, he demands to see what the rest of the world is like. So eventually, they agree to, and they take him to each of those places. And eventually, as child's or children are want to, he says, I'm tired, I want to go home. And they say to him, you can't. <laughs> and he goes, why? And fundamentally, it's because we've been here the whole time. Right. It's the same village, each place you went. You just learn to see them. And once you've seen what the rest of it is like, you can't go back to that limited sense of it. And I told this to my folks because I talk about writing to them sometimes. And they looked at me and said, you said to that tale to us when you were five. Yeah. And here I am having worked on the initial conception of the book, the initial short stories of it in college, which is quite a few years ago now. And then I tell them this and find that the seeds of this tale <laughs> started so much earlier. Yeah. And I think, I think we're getting to it is, is some of these root causes, you know, these are themes, like you mentioned, that, that have been with you probably all your life, you know, the death recursion and memory and, and that urge to kind of make sense of things is probably connected to that. I'm, I'm, as someone who considers himself not at all prolific for reasons that mostly have to do with, to, to be simplistic, letting life get in the way and not being disciplined enough to prevent that. I'm fascinated by, I, I, I'm curious, I should say, how you're f feeling about working on the same novel in, in one form or another since college, which I'm guessing was 15, 20 years ago. I'm 38, so a few years ago. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating. There was a time where I thought of them as the same book, but <laughs> I look back to those earliest notes, which had giant robots and laser kings and other silly stuff from mild childhood that seemed so cool at the time that had to be in the story. And it's not only a different world, but an entirely different tale. And I essentially had to write three different books to find this one. Mm -hmm. I had to, in my short stories, I would always hear characters' voice, what that was like first. And then I would have a sense of what they were doing, what that was like, the action, their behavior, why. And then finally, the world. And in a short story, of course, that comes over a month, right? A few weeks. 
in a novel, <laughs> I ended up writing three drafts, one for the voice, one for the action, one for the world. Or another way, one for the characters, one for the story, one for the world in which it happens. And about, I would say, five or six years ago, I hit a point of inflection where what I had written was too large to be a book, but also not in a shape that could be broken cleanly into a few books. I saw at least three different books I could make out of it, but there was not a definitive end, the kind that you would put down and say, when's the next one to that arc at the time? And I was recovering from a spinal injury. There was unsurprisingly a lot of death, illness, and injury in my family life at the time. And it forced me to, I think as COVID has done for all of us, be simply in the now. And I couldn't write physically because of the pain, because of the medications, because I didn't have the mind for it for a long time. Mm -hmm. But I chewed over that question. If there is a smaller book inside of this, the first book, right? What is the end of that and why? Why would someone hear that ending and go, right, when's the next? And I had a dream somewhere in, I'll say, December of that year, which is 2000 and I want to say 15. Okay. There are timestamps in the notes, but I'd have to sift through to find yeah, it. Sure. So roughly five, six years ago. Yeah. So in the book, and this will help give people a clear sense of how this and why this dream didn't feel right to me. There are those too full of fire, literally and figuratively, and those who dream too much. And that causes a great deal of complications for most who are neither. <laughs> the story is told now and then. And that was one of my earliest mistakes. I had Adam, one character, narrate both times, which is deeply confusing to write and to read. If I have two characters telling the story, though, one can say now, one can say then. They can be a part of each other's tale and lives. But that very clear delineation, Connor's talking now, Adam's talking now, first person point of view on each, you know where you're at at all times. Much easier. So that was the draft I used to graduate. I had to put an appendix to it saying, here's everything I would fix. <laughs> That's how I passed. <laughs> 438 pages or 40-something pages without a single revision in sight. Uh, but I had this dream. Yeah. And it occurred neither in the now or the then, but was instead about this king and his son at this some other place in time where there were cars and cameras, which weren't in the book at this time, by and large, in the story of it, and folks trying to take pictures of them and some type of announcement of, you know, him taking on the throne soon because he's 15 or 16, he seemed like. And the dream seemed to be from the father, the king's point of view. And as they're walking out of the promenade past the columns of the grand building they had been in, there's the fountain, everyone gathered around trying to get to the car. And his son sees something off in the distance. And oh, I've said this before in other shows, so I'll keep it quick. But there's an explosion that distracts his son and people scatter because it's massive and loud. And he's trying and trying to get a hold of his son. And the first time, he reaches, he's brushed, his hand is brushed by the crowd. He can't catch sight of him. And he looks, when he looks again, right, it's not a 16-year-old son he sees, but a boy who's five. And even in the dream, I had this moment of going, are these two separate times, or is this just how he sees this son right now? Which is weird to have in a dream, but I did. Yeah. And then he reaches out to his son again, and he grabs a hold of him. And the boy, 16, as he's wanting to, chides him, you're the king, you have to lead it and all that. And the final retort fundamentally is, I don't, you know, then let them see you're my son. That fundamentally none of this matters but this beat right here. Right. And I woke up from that and I had to write it down because it was still in my head. Mm -hmm. And dreams usually aren't that, right? So I, I'm writing it down. I'm recording it, as I said, on the audio recorder because I can't write fast enough. Yeah. 
And I sit down and go, that's Adam and his father, but they're not alive then. And neither of them are royalty. So who the hell are they? (laughs) Because I had that feeling that this was true, capital T, true in the story. But there's no kingdom. There's no king. Well, right. They they don't have to be literal king, little literal uh, royalty, too. Oh, sure. It could be all allegorical. Yeah. But that was the thing. The literal truth felt true. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing I chewed over because it didn't go anywhere else in the story. And I struggled with that, I think, as a lot of us do when we write, because we have our way of thinking it's going to be and we go so far into it. And then something arrives and says, well, here you are. This is also part of the tale. Deal with it. And I could have refused, but I had learned, or rather I was challenging myself not to this time, to not fight that moment where what I wanted got in the way of what had arrived. And I said, okay, I have written about a war that occurred before, allegedly the last war, clearly not. (laughs) And there were bits and pieces, interstitials, if you like, from folks who were part of the resistance, the ones overthrowing the powers that be at the time. But I had never put anything down as to what those people were like, those who were in power at the time, what their life was. And there were in the story already folks analogous to people in the then and the now, folks like Connor and Adam and Dolores and Sophie and Iago and Orlando and the other important characters in the story. So it was possible that somebody like Adam and his father could be in that time, even if it's purely just an allusion to what the relationship now is like. So what if these things are true? What if there is a kingdom off in this part of the world I haven't written much about or know, I don't know much about yet? Let's just let that be there and see what else I find. And mind you, as much as I love science fiction and fantasy and phantasmagorical tales, I wasn't for a long time one who enjoys writing that. I wanted literary, character-driven, as George Saunders would say, serious work, the kind that his advisor said, fine, you can pursue, but don't lose the magic to as he did for a time. Mm-hmm. That was a fascinating interview to read. <laughs> I'm going to create art. and art can't be fun. Yeah, he, he came around eventually. <laughs> <laughs> and I have friends who loved that old work and friends who hated it because for them, as beautiful as it was, it was so alienating. And I, you know, watercolors without lines. People felt the same way about my work at times. They felt the heart was too distant. So here I am trying to find the heart. And to do that, I have to stop getting in the way of what that's of that and <laughs> this will i follow that dream through and i have another later about adam or someone like him and someone narrating him walking through this old frozen kingdom there's the remnants of the plaza where you can still see the damage from the eruption there's the car still encased under snow and the ice it's this old woman's leading him down through all of it to this tome far off into the reaches of the city and everything he's seeing this old withered black tree and other and white wheat painted and carved onto the walls are things that had occurred in the prologue as I had written already from a sequence, a dream he'd had or something like. And I won't give away it in entirety, but for someone to want to finish this book and go to the next one, there was one thing that had to be answered. Both Adam and Connor want to undo what's been done before, bring back something that was lost before. And everything in the story has told them this is impossible. So at the end of the book, they either have to accept that or decide that despite it, they continue. And what would give someone the reason to continue if everything else up to this point has said, there's no way to do, right? What proof would he accept? So if, for instance, there's some way to bring a person back, what believable, irrefutable proof could there be that he finds at the end 
that he decides one last time. All right, one last time. Try. And here she is leading him down through this tomb to what should be there and what he doesn't find. That's the proof. And it's this weird kind of fairy tale, like fable, fabulous moment. I felt it. There was a, a kind of a beating heart to it because as the scene was being written, it wasn't being written by me. It was the king himself or someone like him, Adam's father, writing down and narrating this scene, the prince and the witch going down to the tomb and something and all that. And I could see him writing and writing and writing this whole story that he had never given to somebody, still felt the urge to write, that someday he would provide to him when it was ready, when it was time. And I put that aside because I felt like I was reaching something I hadn't before. And as I've learned, when you reach, when you're at that moment, step aside, take a break, accept, don't force it, have a few days off, come back to it when you have a clear state of mind again. And I did. I hiked on the trail. I took my recorder out. I went back to the very beginning of the book, absolute beginning of the book, Adam out in the snow, his parents have had a fight, his mother calls him to come back inside, and before they do, his father meets him on the side of a road with a box he's pulled up from the pond, and there's something inside the box that he gives to Adam that is beating and warm and weird, and I had to stop and I asked myself on the trail what's in the box, because you, the reader, on the first two pages don't need to know, but I do. I have to know what's in that box to know why it has the impact it does in the rest of the prologue. Why does it matter to give, why now, to give this back to Adam? So I asked, what's in the box? And as soon as I did, the answer was his heart. And then I stopped him, well, then he's dead because he doesn't have a heart. (laughs) But clearly he's not, so he's alive without a heart inside him, Mm -hmm. which means he's in a world where that's possible. Mm -hmm. If not for everyone, then for him, but why? I don't know, but let's accept his father's giving him back this box with a heart inside, well, why would they take it out in the first place? Adam's one of those two full of fire. They thought that's where the the flame resides. They'll take it out and bury it in the depths of the pond. He'll be fine. What's the fight about? They weren't right. It's too much. They have to give it back to him, but it's not safe to. So what else can they do? They've tried everything. So Joseph, the father, invites someone who can solve things. And his solutions are final. Either Adam is all right and he'll live, or he's not and he won't. And decision is made that night. So for Joseph to invite this man into the home and not tell his wife, that's the fight. Okay. So these are all things that you, you, you started, started to coalesce for you and, and you figured out uh, roughly five, five-ish years ago, right? When is done? When, when do you foresee this, this project becoming something that changing from something that you're working on and, and to something that you can say that you can ship? When I had that moment of revising the prologue, because I dearly did not want to just go and revise the prologue again, I'd written three books already. There were iterations on a theme of these notions and characters. Mm-hmm. If I was going to do it again, there had to be a reason why it would work this time. If I was going to find the heart, I had to find it. So I did two things. One, in this iteration, I deliberately wrote down what I call the heart of the scene, that moment every beat leads to or follows from. And if I didn't know what it was, my work in the drafting would be to find it. Because I can revise all the other language as much as I like, but if I knew what drove each scene, if I knew the truths that had led to it and the ones that would follow from, then I would be able to write a book that had the heart right there on the page the whole time. And I said to myself, fine, if I'm going to do this, we're reading the book in entirety. Whatever it was before, it's not now. We're going to find what it is this time. And it's been a long endeavor, but entirely different. The clarity that act provided. 
I still struggle sometimes, right, with being sure or certain or wanting things to be a way. And I've definitely been surprised quite a few times, as I've said in other shows. But I know not just from how my process works that I will find the answer because the years of evidence prove that. Even if I don't today or tonight know with certainty, I'll wake up before in the morning or three days later and just write it down because I know the subconscious mind has worked on it. Or I'll watch something that is enough of a spark to go, oh, right, if this, then that, then those other things. That's the, that's the one thing I was trying, I couldn't articulate yet, but put this piece in here, it's the linchpin, everything else fits. Let's continue. You know, it's like a symphony. Sometimes you feel there's an instrument missing. There's a dish with a taste missing and you keep struggling for that flavor. You can force yourself to find it, but you step aside, eventually you will. So I did. I learned how to step aside, put myself to the side, empty that cup out and be less attached to the work, which sounds so strange for a creative to say, because the work is why we live, isn't it? It's what drives us most of our day. Well, everything you're talking about is the work, so... But if you're too attached to it, if you want it too much, if you try to drive and force and shove it into the rest of your life too much, there's nothing, there's no person left to tell any of it, right? There's no instrument left to perform the work. So I had to learn to be a little more detached from it, to set specific days aside, to know when I was reaching the point where I was too tired to, to feel a sense of certainty and to let that go. And to end my days at a certain time so that I would sleep and rest and let the rest of my mind do what it liked and listen and hear fundamentally who those characters are, what they're like, what they need, want, and desire, and how that drives. And I'm a few chapters now from the end. Be probably about 30-something. Let's say 33. There's other work to do. There's interstitials in between, but it's entirely different this time, I would say. I don't feel a sense of either dread nearing the end or achievement, weirdly. It's it's neither of those things. There's something more zen. Good. I, I Well, because the, 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 the question that springs to mind in, is, what are you going to do <laughs> if between now and these next few chapters, as you're so close to the end, what are you going to do if, it might not come this way, but, but for want of a better way to put it, you have another dream? Actually, funnily enough, this happened recently. And and are you staying on task? <laughs> because I guess my point is, is this book could always become a different book. Right. And that's the thing. I, there were moments where I had a fear of, okay, you and I talked before my show about genre. What are the bounds of it? The book itself largely sits within literary fiction, science fiction, fantasy, and, and some horror. It's I'm not much of focusing on what genre it's supposed to be because my interest is in telling the story that the characters have. Yeah. And that's part of their life. I, that said, there are points where I go, is this truly part of the world or is this just a fun thing I'd like to see in it? And there are a few that have happened I've talked about on the podcast. I think episode 23 and recently in an interview, probably episode 32 or 33. It was with I Create Sound where I talked about discovering that a character was in fact blind and had been the entire story. Right, right. That was a moment of me going back and realizing, oh, no, I've laid that in. I just didn't have the words to articulate the entirety of it. Because again, as with the Valley, not all of my work is conscious. Mm-hmm. So there's a certain amount of, to your point, trust I have to have in knowing that the conscious mind will arrive at what the subconscious one already has and where the subconscious one has already arrived. And those two work on very different routes and paths. So I'd have to trust both to meet at some point in time. 
because those moments, like the dream or when I lost all of chapter 15, I literally cannot find the old draft. Mm-hmm. I, do, I can't find the audio. I can't find the writing. So I had to rewrite the entirety of what had been the old chapter 15. It's now 27 through 29. And I hated that. I so deeply hated that moment of having to start from scratch. That said, what filled and arrived in that space is true, real, and right, and belonged in the story for, had belonged in the story for most of his life. I just had not found the where and the why of it yet. Mm-hmm. My friend, the neuroscientist Nick Laurie, said he, he went, if you're going to have illusions to miss in the gods and what things were like before, you don't have to say what they were like before in entirety. You know, you don't need a 10,000-year timeline, but you do need to know if things go back in some ways that far. If there's a sense that there's a history as old as that, you need to know enough of what people believe is true and act on. Mm-hmm. And perhaps beyond that, a little bit of what's actually true so that you can let it peek through as well, so that you can give those glimmers or hints of it. And these three chapters allowed me to essentially answer what in the world the divine is like, because it's been something alluded to, suggested, people think about and talk about. But to, if we're going to have a story of recursion, not just talk now and then and a time before, what that what that first one might have been the seed you know the the germ or the seed that kind of started all of it i had alluded to it already in chapter four and chapter 15 all the threads had been there and this these penultimate chapters ended up becoming a place to tie all of that together before the last few where everything comes to bear and yes i could have been furious at the time that forced me to put aside for it but there's such a delight and I think back to what Gabriel Pino, one of my writing teachers at USC, said, if you're not surprising yourself, you're not surprising the reader. And it's not just a matter of surprise. It's, oh my God, right? That sense of awe people get where the story feels both inevitable but amazing at the same time. You knew it was coming. You could feel in some sense this is the way things are headed. But when it is there, when you feel it, you're still in that moment in awe. You're still surprised. Well, subconsciously, as a writer, subconsciously or deliberately, that's 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 a matter of architecture and craft. I mean, the the, the reader might have that pleasant surprise that that in retrospect they saw coming, because the story is crafted so that it properly does that job. And this is this is interesting because you're you're kind of like the the <laughs> the ultimate pantser, uh, uh, and you know, I think all of our listeners are going to know what I mean by that, the difference between a pantser and a plotter, someone who kind of writes as they go and someone who plans ahead. And, but I mean, you're not, you're not just the pantser, you're kind of the tailor as well. You're, you're building the pants and then putting them on and walking around and seeing where they take you. Your process is so, uh, so lengthy. To touch back on what we talked before, that rich inner world, it seems to the observer that nothing is set, but everything internally is built upon what came before. So it is, I kind of think of it as a lattice on a garden where when you go and see the roses blooming, it looks like they just bloomed. But to your point, so much went into the time at which they do, the color at which they do, the reasons they do. And it's that, did you ever watch Futurama? A little bit, yeah. Okay. There is at one point, there's a robot named Bender, and he gets lost, deeply and utterly lost in space to drift for presumably eternity, and meets what he thinks is God. Doesn't, of course, answer him yes or no, because it has no reason to. 
And they argue back and forth about all the things Bender has not liked happening, because if God is omniscient and omnipotent, why? You know, and Bender is the cynic in the show. Mm -hmm. So, of course, he's going to ask, why this, why that? And how did it, you know, and the reply fundamentally is, well, but I know you're real. Shouldn't I tell people? I know you made all these things or influenced or let it all happen in some fashion or created the world in which it could, right? How will anyone, won't people believe me when I tell them? And the reply is no. If I've done my work, they'll never know. Right. Well, and that's, I guess that's what I'm saying is, is your instructor had, had said that, you know, if, if you're surprised or not surprised, then the reader will be surprised or not surprised. And I think maybe the surprise on the, on the author's side might come when the, the, the initial realization that that sort of gem can be put in the story, that, that might be a surprise, but then comes the actual, you know, there's the vision, which is the surprise. And then there's the, the, the blueprint that you actually have to draw and sketch out right. and, how, and, and how make. You yeah. Lay the words, how you yeah, form yeah, the scene, yeah. all that fits into place so that they don't necessarily take the exact journey you did, but they can reach the same place or similar enough. Well, yeah, they, they can't really take the same journey you did. That's because you're directing them. Importantly, whatever they see influences what that process is like for them. But so just to, to circle back, because we kind of drifted away from the question is, are you, let me put it a different way. Are you committed to finishing the book that you're writing now as you're writing it now? <laughs> or are you going to allow yourself to, to in, rather than having a, a, a new idea or a new revelation and putting that in a different book, are you going to allow yourself to be pulled away from, from the finish line? So close to, so close to done. You know, that's the, the funny thing about this entire process. There's, it's always been as nonlinear as my mind is, and the process can be at times. It's been a, an actual, the journey itself has been just one foot forward in front of each other to the same end all the way. There were some moments where the end of the book looked a little different, but knowing the end, and this is why I say to folks when I begin working with them, there are three things you need to know your world stories and characters, where your tale begins and how it will end. Mm -hmm. You don't need to know all of them right now, but you do need to know them. For me, knowing how the tale ends, where it begins and my world story and characters, whatever else happens is just part of the journey. I know where this goes. I know how it ends. I've written about two-thirds of the final chapter already, as well as the epilogue. So I couldn't with certainty tell you two months, three months, five months, because there's a lot of finalization and polish that has to be done on the draft. And I deliberately don't do that when I'm in the drafting process because I find for me, editing interferes with the finding. So I have to first take that leap, ask what if, follow it a while, let all of that be. And then the, the work after is right. Now, how does the reader find this? How does the viewer arrive there too? And those are different projects. So there will be time to embark upon that as the next primary thing, which is where I start pondering you know, whether to serialize the work as is. Or, in other words, find a way to engage the audience prior to publication point so that I can continue working on it, but also let people see and experience it in some fashion. Yeah, I want to talk about that in a, in a second. I, I, I want to touch because we've, we've, we've kind of skirted around this idea because I know that your day job is to help other people finish their work and get their work out there. So as a writer yourself, what's, what's your definition of success? What's, what's, what's your... Are you speaking, are you asking for me individually or just for how I think writers in general? No, no, you personally. What is your definition of success as a writer? What, what are you, what's your goal in terms of your creative writing? So for this book in particular, okay. 
beyond publishing, I would dearly love to do an adaptation. I dearly love to have an illustrated version <laughs> from the first go because I love those kinds of books. And I have found folks who've created work that fits so well with what I write that it kind of serves as a compliment, but also people have shown it to without even seeing other material go, oh, that's Adam, that's Connor. So that to me says there are other ways to show and share the story. I would love to do a visual adaptation, be it animated or not of the work at some point, because I think there's there's a magic to telling stories in different media that I'd love to play and experiment with. But I know to arrive at that, of course, the book has to be in its initial form first so that people can find it. You can build the audience, the market, the audience, and the tribe. So that's my short-term goal as it is. Have the market, see who from that wants to be my audience, those who like, and see who from that wants to be part of the tribe, those who provide, who subscribe to you the content, the mini lessons I do, the short stories and performance stuff we do, or actually want to have the book in some fashion, be it in serialized form or in print or digital with illustrations or just in text. And I'm not one of those writers who wants to write everything that happens in this world. You know, I don't feel the urge to tell every story and every character's point of view. There's not going to be an omnibus of side stories as far as I feel right now. Mm. My interest in this world is not to tell all the stories it could contain, but definitely to tell this one. And because there's those are the people in my, who are living in my head that want the tale told. And from a person, from a life lived as a creator, I would like them to be able to live outside of me because the tale, as I've argued many times, does not exist until someone else finds mm-hmm. it. It does not truly exist. Absolutely. So I would say for it to reach the audience's end, from the people who want it most, who desire it, I would love for it to be profitable, to make this sustainable for me, because this is what I do. And I do love coaching and teaching and guiding people, but I cannot do one without the other, right? I cannot be a coach and someone who teaches people how to make stories without also making them and showing how they are made. Right. And I, as much as I love making stories, there's a separate joy in helping people devise and create and bring those to life. So for me, they are not separable. They are different kinds of life and work that I have to do simultaneously at different points of my week and my month. Mm-hmm. But the I am neither purely creative nor purely analytical. And I've even in my corporate work, I was the same. So I like puzzles, I like strategy, I like challenges, I like taking and analyzing and breaking things down to solve them. But Stories for me are, as on that level, kind of the ultimate challenge. They are, there's so many ways and things you could do with how to figure out the right for you, for the person creating, for the people they want to share it to. There's, it's a rich task of making the unreal into the real, the unknown into the known. And that takes a life. So I will write other books. I have other ones drafted that I would love to get to after this. And I will. But this this journey, I think, as I said to my coach at one point, she asked me a few years ago, maybe a couple when I started this revising with clarity, she said, do you think you could have written this story you are now in your 20s? And I said, no. Right. Of course not. I was, and I don't just mean from proficiency, from experience, et cetera. I was not the person I needed to be to tell it the way it needed to be told. Of course. And that probably sounds a posteriori, but it's true. The things I've lived through have been wonderful and horrible at the same time. As I I talked about in the Ignorance Was Bliss podcast, I personally don't believe in the story that you should shy away from sharing both. Uh, to have the sad, the funny, the beautiful, the weird, 
the hideous, the awesome, the terrifying. Yeah. I, I mean, you may have been able to write that this book in your 20s, but it wouldn't have been this book. It would have been a different book. And it may have been great, but it wouldn't have been this book. It would have been a three and a half star book in my 20s. In all honesty, it would have gone on Amazon. It would have earned at most three and a half stars. And I, I say that with no disrespect to the previous work and to what I wrote. But it did, the, the piece before did not have the nuance in life to reach the people who'd want to find it. Right. Didn't have the heart. Right. And that can be, if you are not learning, if you did not know before how to find it, it can be a long process mm -hmm. to find. Mm -hmm. I'd say, honestly, that's really the work of my 10 years, not even the writing the book, but learning how to find the heart of the tale and share it with someone else. Well, it sounds like what you're really possibly saying is, is the work of the 10 years was learning enough about yourself to be able to tell the tale. About me, about the world story and character, so that when I did it, I could do it right. And... I do think back to this idea that people have where artists should suffer for the work, that that's what inspires. And part of, I suppose, why Bradbury resonated with me, why There Will Come Soft Rains touched me so long ago when I first read it, as cantankerous as he could be when he was old, he loved the characters he wrote. Mm -hmm. You don't have to as the reader, but it shows. Right. Well, and he also, you know, he was a... Uh, I, I think you know, paraphrasing him, but basically he was saying, you know, write a story a week. You'll have 52 stories at the end of the year and one or two of them will be good. <laughs> and the, and a year after that, three or four of them will be good. And a year after that, five or six of them will be good, you know, but you have to do the work. You have to show up. Look at Philip K. Dick. Mm -hmm. Look at, why am I blanking on her name? Oh, prolific, prolific writer. She wrote a short story about a man. It's, it's based off of a, uh, Based off a of Bob Dylan song, when are you coming? When will you go? Oh, um, yeah. See, now I'm going to be. <laughs> you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. In her mind, she said there are two kinds of writers, those who are swimmers and those who are runners. And then she paused and said, and then there are those who crawl across a field full of grass on their hands and knees. Right. A field full of glass on their hands and knees. <laughs> We're going <laughs> to kick ourselves when you find her. It's Joyce Carol Oates. Here we go. Prolific writer again. And. In both of those cases, there are gems to their work. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot of other work. Sure. And that's part of how they work, to go through the rest of that and share it, to arrive at those pieces that are the ones that resonate with us. And, you know, even within the book itself, there'll probably be chapters that some folks like more than more, which is fine. Well, sure. <laughs> but I'm not them in how I write. And I had to learn and accept that, that I wasn't going to be the person putting out 100 short stories in 15 years. And it's, it's, I, I kind of admire the fact that you've, you've, uh, you seem so well adjusted to your level of, of, or to, <laughs> insanity. <laughs> well, no, to, uh, to your output, you know, you're, you're okay with the idea that this has taken as long as it has and however long it will. And this is, I mean, you're not alone in that, uh, but it's, it's alien to me because I think to myself, you know, I, I have all of these stories that, that, I would like to get out there and all of them are equally important and all of them are part of the same large vision. And, <laughs> and so I'm, I'm kind of the opposite. I'm like, yeah, I, I could not possibly spend uh, five, six, 10 years on, on one book. <laughs> Have you read Patrick Rothfuss? Uh, Name of the wind guy that him. Yeah. I, I tried. I, re I read the first book and I stopped. It's, it is one of those works that you do love or you hate, but I, he's a, as everyone knows, George R. R. Martin, but he's a great example of that. Tad Williams, to a certain extent, too, who inspired 
Martin and Rothfuss and a few others. The Memory Sorrowins mm-hmm. series, he has a sequel out to that now, which hopefully the third book is coming soon. Is a And even you know, with Williams is a great example, you can look at his earlier fiction and his later, and the stories are similar, but the way he tells them, you can see the difference. It's not just the age in terms of 20 versus 40 or whatever, but the the certainty and confidence with which the story is told and the clarity. And I think part of what allows me to accept the work I did before is that I needed to do it. I had to do it. Right. To reach this place where I could feel, even if on a given day I'd walk on the trail and go, right, so what comes after that sentence? I don't know. (laughs) And I'll say to myself, okay, well, today's a discovery day. It doesn't matter how much I find, simply that I find. Mm. Which is funny because usually I find a lot in those days, but if I tell myself that it doesn't matter the amount, the volume, the quantity, just that I do. I, for myself, step aside from the fears and anxieties that I still have, right? They don't go away. No, they shouldn't. But, <laughs> oh, that, that's where you screw up, because the moment you think everything you're doing is perfect. Right. <laughs> but the, you know, I went on the trail yesterday, and my dad is dying of cancer. I am torn up. I know from the losses I've endured before, that that interferes with my writing. So I'm deliberately taking measures this time to accept how I feel, but also continue work. Mm -hmm. Because the one thing I don't want to do this time is stop. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I had a similar experience uh, trying to finish my last work, uh, The Perfumed Air at Kwanantag Bay, which is a a novelette. And I I had given myself... Yeah, maybe three months to do it, all told from like first word to to publish. And because uh, it's a novelette, you know, how long how long could it take? <laughs> 38 years. <laughs> well, it, it ended up taking six months. Uh, and and it was because I realized very early on what the book was at least partially going to be dealing with and what was what was going to what couldn't help but enter into the story which is the the death of my mother the year before and mm-hmm. the entire you know sort of existential weight of having half a million or, or yeah half a million people die uh in the same year that you're writing it and yeah it it sitting down to actually write it there i have this discussion with with writers at different levels all the time it seems about the emotional investment in the actual writing session the 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 mental and emotional and caloric cost <laughs> of each session. And I would come away from some of those, yeah. you know, just exhausted. And there were some days where it suddenly became so much more important to work on the world building than the actual writing. But I recognized that that was, well, you just don't want to face what you have to write about and why. But I think, yeah, like, like you said, you decided this time you, you, you weren't going to stop because of these other things. And they will probably show up in the work, you know, one way or the other, which I think is a good thing. It reminds me of my uh, advisor at USC, James Reagan, Fulbright scholar and poet, phenomenal orator. When he was talking about poetry, he said, the important thing to keep in mind is that you must first be aware. <laughs> you must think, listen, hear, feel, then you describe from that. And doesn't mean you get to what you're trying to lead to at the end of the poem or find there. From those simple things go to the one that's harder to think about or reach or speak and not necessarily of 
oh my God, there are grapes in the fridge, dad's dying of cancer. Although poems are like that sometimes. <laughs> right. But we were just talking about this in the last episode because it's true in philosophy as well. But what my guest had said was, you know, when you take those big leaps of thought and try to solve the world, more often than not, you don't. But if instead you sit and try to contemplate a little patch of grass and why it is the way it is, you'll come up with an answer that leads to other answers. And to your point, yes, I might never write about the fact that he's dying of cancer in the book as a direct thing. Right. But as I said, death, recursion, and memory are mm -hmm. in the book through the entirety of it. And when I sent the prologue to a friend who is a psychiatrist or psychologist, young analyst, she said, it's funny. This is before I knew Adam was blind with certainty. There's such an intentionality to how he tells himself the way the world is. Like he has to prove that it's this way constantly, not just that it was this way, but it still is this way. He has to tell himself, this is what things feel like and smell like and look like, which of course makes more sense when you look at the story as his parents having created a little world for him to survive and, and then fighting over what that should be like. Mm -hmm. And as the seams of that fall apart and you don't need magical realism for that to be true no no and that's the that you know specificity is universal you know and that's that's the beauty of of good fantastic fiction right when joseph says i thought i could beat it out of him he did <laughs> he tried everything else mm -hmm. i personally and part of what's taxing for me is that i do have to write from that kind of point of view of agape of compassion where i have to be there with them feel what they do it's yeah kind of stanislavski and that can be immensely tiring i'd argue because, that it should be <laughs> you know sometimes my friend asked me friends asked me why are you so tired and i said because i'm living multiple lives yes amen <laughs> yes <laughs> the beauty of stories fictional or not is that they let us do that they let us see what the rest of the world could and should be like so that we can decide what ours must be if we tr strive if we try and to convey enough verisimilitude of the joy, the beauty, the pain, the surprise, the awe, the numinous fear of realizing that you're not here, but on the other, that side, and whether you can ever return to the one you were at before. All of it has to be ground in the sensations. Mm -hmm. You can talk about that surreal moment, or you can discuss diving into the ocean, or describe diving into the ocean, and then as your friends pull you back up out of the water and you stand on it, which should not be possible, <laughs> but it is where you're at. Mm -hmm. And then you look down and the water reflects, like in the Bolivian salt flats, what's above it. Right. The same. Yeah. And I saw that scene for years, trying to figure out where it was and why. And this chapter I'm writing now answer the why, even though it's been throughout the story before. <laughs> I'll, I'll, give away, I'll give this little bit away to you. What needs there to finish when it will reflect anyway? Yeah. That little truth, a small truth, they being the gods or whatever made things before, why make a whole world for man when they can make one that will reflect who he is and what he wants so that it'll better suit and fit him, even if that is imperfect and inexact and flawed? But they don't know what he is and what he's like he does. Why not leave the rest of the world for him to define? And that seemed so simple a thought, with so many consequences after. Right. But that truth, what needs there to finish when it will reflect anyway, gives a heart to the place. It's why that place is the way it is and why it does what it does. 
so that when they're there, it's not just, oh, well, this could happen and this and that could happen. It's who they are and everything about them in this place and what is possible there and how all of those truths lead to the inevitability that follows from that. So, yes, it seems or can sound like on the surface, just a little water glider and its umwelt sliding along. <laughs> but as you and I know, the whole structure of water and physics that allows it to do so, we had to write first. There's an underpinning. Yes, indeed, indeed. So, okay. So you, you let's say that you've got, uh, you know, the, the, you're at least at the end on, on, on this draft and, and ready to move on to, to the editing and stuff. And, and it's on the way, uh, at last to being shown to the world. And what, what's, you mentioned thinking about dabbling with serial fiction. And I know you're keen to talk about some of that stuff. What, what's, what's going to be the avenue to getting it to the world and getting that, that first version of this that will allow for those sort of branch works like a graphic novel version or a, an animation or whatever. What's your path to publication? How do you, how do you want to bring this to those other, other eyes? So one of the things that makes the book weird for me, less so now than it used to be, but certainly weird, I think for people the first time, unlike a lot of literature in its genre, it is mostly first person and it is kind of lyrical at times. There's a certain rhapsody to the way Connor thinks and a certain rumination to the way Adam describes. And funnily enough, part of that came out of an exercise of how I consider what words each of them uses and why. It wasn't, you know, again, it wasn't an endeavor I set out to accomplish, just how they think and describe the world. But there is a certain, I'll, ca I'll describe it this way, I hated Joyce for the longest time. Ulysses, Finnegan's Wake. Mm. I heard a recording of him speaking it at the Writers Museum in Dublin. And like hearing Bradbury describe the story behind the illustrated man or something wicked this way comes, I could hear the rhythm mm -hmm. that laid the narrative out. Right. I could hear the voice that told me the story. And I'm auditory, so that's important to me. Part of, I think, why I key into the visual is that it serves as a beautiful complement and secondary story to the one written. Partly because sometimes as I write, I actually describe it in terms of framing and structure and pants and pan cuts and other stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, the screenplay language and other things do, and sometimes I don't have the literary words described, but I can see if this were a movie or a webcomic or a graphic novel or, right. you know, et cetera, how that actual scene would work down to the framing, the pacing, et cetera. So... There's a little bit of, I suppose, an experimenter in me that wants to play with whether or not that could fit in some fashion, even the original work, mm -hmm. if I had the right person to help me do that. Right. And I do think about how long a work it is. It is 30 some odd chapters. The end is the end, and it is an ending that everyone I've told it to says, damn it, when's the next book? <laughs> I can tell you I won't share it here, but I did give that away to some people I know who wouldn't share it outwise, but whose, you know, views and feelings I trusted to give me an honest reaction. Mm -hmm. Not just, we like you and your writing, so of course we'll say it's right, great. Right, right. But as in, no, that's really good. So part of me wants the finished work to have that in it so that you go from that beginning, that prologue to that end, that epilogue of them wandering through that, because it ties it all together. It hits that theme of recursion. Mm -hmm. But part of me wonders whether the thematics are really what matters so much as getting the story into the hands of the people who want it. Right. Right. So serialization, 
becomes a way for me to provide the work in an 80 to 90% fashion as I continue to, f- to finalize it mm-hmm. and add in the other pieces of it while building up the audience, finding out who likes it and why, right? Because as we all know, working PR, marketing, social media, et cetera, we can talk all we want about why someone could want a thing. Right. We have fundamentally end up needing the data, the information, what resonates with them to know who follows, who reads the book, who clicks with what and why. And that's important, not just for the initial, okay, how am I promoting this online? But when the book is saleable in serial fashion or otherwise, how to make sure it reaches those people through lists, through proper branding, et cetera. So I kind of look at serialization as a way to gather information prior to the publication, to build the audience up, to get the list, to get the following. You know, I made the foolish mistake of launching the Patreon years ago without any of that. Right. And simultaneously thinking, oh, I'll just post the book as I'm writing it. But that only works if, of course, the work has reached a point where you can do so consistently. And I was still building up to that point, so I couldn't. It's why now on the Patreon, we do a few things. You get monthly lessons, about a page or so on how to write. You have an exclusive mini episode. And we have our community on the Discord online. Very simple. It's $5 a month, but it's something sustainable that people like. And we can do mini series on how to build worlds. We can do mini stories, reading short stories that people want, talking about Michael Moorcock's body of work. You know, whatever guest feels a connection to an idea we can play around with. And that was important for me to arrive at because it became too much to do alongside the coaching and the writing. Yeah. But it also meant that couldn't be the place I share the story. Have you considered uh, podcasting it in serial form? Basically going audio drama. Well, uh, not necessarily audio drama, but just basically a serialized audio book that's delivered free to anybody so that you get that sampling. You find out who your audience is rather than having it restricted to your Patreon or, you know, uh, on a uh, particular platform. Right. Like Wattpad or Medium, right? people are either on or not. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think there is a value to hearing it told. That's why I mentioned it. Yeah. Cause you seemed to appeal that, that seemed to appeal to you, the rhythm of the speaking. Partly because, yes, to your point, I think for some folks, and I guess here's a fear we'll talk about because it's one I've had for a long time. Most of the times I've read my work aloud, I met with absolute and utter silence after. No, it's, it is the weirdest thing. Could be nonfiction, could be fiction. It hasn't mattered what it's been about. It's not looks of surprise on their face. It's just there's this profound silence. And I so deeply hate it because it means so little to me, right? If you hate the work and I see confusion or disgust, okay, well, something didn't work. If you are delighted, I can tease from that. But there's so many things the silence could be. Have you ever asked for follow-up in those instances? In the few times I had, the people I've spoken to have liked it, but that's, you know, a small, too small sampling of an audience of 100 or 200. So... I've read the auditoriums and had absolute silence for like a minute and a half afterwards. I'm going to suggest that that if there's complete silence when you're done, that means they've been paying attention. If if there was, you know, rustling and small talk and and people are looking at their phones, that would be a negative response in in the form of a non-response. So I don't know. I, I the question is, and I get I get your point and why it's 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 frustrating is you don't know why it has affected them that way. 
But I, I wouldn't take absolute silence as necessarily a negative, uh, just a black box. Yeah. yeah and that, that's, I try not to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's, you can shake it all you want, but there's only so many answers you get out of but it. But here's the thing about releasing it as a podcast, as you know, as a podcaster, most of the response you get from a podcast episode is no response. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, so the responses that you do get will be telling. And here's the other thing about doing it as a podcast. You could also very easily uh, in the show notes that associate that are associated with each episode have the text of that chapter or scene or whatever. So that if people chose to, they could read. And those people who are more want to read could leave comments there um, in addition to the people who've heard it. It might give you the best of both worlds while still enabling you to find an audience that you may not be aware of yet. And I know whatever is recorded for that will not necessarily be the final because that's whatever goes into And I'm fine with that because it's that is the piece performed as it is in the moment. Mm-hmm which is the same of, is as true of music and poetry and pilots as it is anything else right. you create. I was just thinking it might be fun too, because I, I think it's important, particularly for the first few, to have the author read enough of it to establish as best they can a sense of what this is like and how to hear and listen to it. But I think it's also possible to have other guest folks on it reading it. Possibly. You know, I'd have to play around with that. I, it would probably be too much coordinated work to have dedicated voices because that becomes a plan. Uh, that's a schedule. nightmare. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to do no. that. <laughs> no. We do that for our other shows, and it's already an adventure. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a lot of work for probably not the, the return that you're going to want. Right, because to your point, it needs to be something easy. Yes, yes. And uh, while it, it could be fun to have guest voices come in, if the main point of this this experiment is to kind of get a a beta version of the novel out there to the world and to build to find indeed find the audience for this particular very particular work then i would stick with your one voice because that's going to raise that's going to raise the intimacy and the connection between those hearing it you know, you know how this works. They will become invested not just in the book, but in your success with the book because they've been with you personally all that way. Attached to you. And I think part of the appeal of people and part of why podcasting itself has ballooned this past year so massively, there is an intimacy to having the voice there with you. Right. And it's also when you'd like. Mm-hmm. Then you can do on your own time. I can do the dishes. I can. I think probably to make it containable or easy to produce, it should be something small. Mm-hmm. It might even be just a few scenes with mini episodes, right? So maybe five to 10 minutes even at most. Yeah. Just to... I mean, enough that you're able to to complete a beat, you know, uh, so that they're... Well, yeah, yeah. As, as with any produced piece, there has to be that. Yeah, yeah. At the end. Now, I, uh, I would think, for instance, if we did the prologue, there's probably the first three scenes because... The end of the third scene has one of those very clean, sharp beats mm-hmm. that shifts the rest of the chapter. But I, the one, because the one challenge with serialization I find is that it increases the amount of production you have to do. Sure, sure. And I think that's part of what we as creatives sometimes struggle with. And now my clients have the yes, we could do all of these things to engage with the folks who want to, but how do we make that non-intrusive to our 
existing life and work. That's the one I always hear. I'm sure you have too. Well, sure. And 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 with the serialization question, I mean, uh, the trouble with just regular old web or app-based serialization is most of them are very they're silos, you know, whether they're a, they're they're dedicated to a particular genre or a particular age especially, uh age of reader, you know. So you could put the book on, you know, Wattpad or Radish or, or wherever uh, or do it as a, a, a stack. What's the, there's a, there's a short stack or something. There's oh, yeah. dozens of them. Uh, oh, Substack, Yeah. The newsletter. Yeah. Yes. Or, you know, Kindle Vela when it finally comes out, but those are, you know, most of those are very, like I said, specific to a certain genre or a certain age group, or they're so not specific that you might as well just put it on your own website. <laughs> you know what I mean? And the podcast would be extra work for sure, but at least you have the advantage of a little bit better discoverability. You know, um, there's already there's already a broad sort of niche of podcast fiction out there, and so people people watching or sorry listening to like Escape Pod or something like that will already see pop up recommended something like what you might do. Yeah, and that's part of why I. We're in an era now where serialized content being present and being adapted has become commonplace. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think during our last conversation, we discussed at least three different web, three different graphic novels that had turned into Netflix series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're, they had been adapting the Dave Abad trilogy as well. I don't know if they still are, which is a, a three book series. And that's sometimes a little more of the classic approach of take a book, turn it into a television show, et cetera. But the, Particularly, I think, the graphic novel, because it has the initial visual component. Yeah, the storyboard's already drawn. <laughs> I, I think, too, it gets to the question of how people like to engage in a story. Some folks, as am I, are highly auditory. Some folks are highly visual. Some folks are more kinesthetic. Mm-hmm. So having those other means from which to, with, through which to first connect with it, whether it's the illustrations and the artwork, whether it's the... As I sometimes, I need to go back to actually, I have I create playlists for all of my characters that are deeply researched that give me a sense of how they think and feel, mm. that texture to it. And I've been chewing over ideas of how to serialize some of that as well. But the to not just reach out to your market audience and try, but to do it in ways that they most enjoy or like, or that feel comfortable and easy to them. Because we can, as you've said, be anywhere, but most people want to be where they're at online. A good story can excite us, yes. But the best ones, fiction or not, compel, inspire, or drive us toward the hope that we need for a better life. Remember, you don't need to know everything right now, but you do need to write. So make sure to like, review, and subscribe to us at Here Be a Tigers. And until next time, take life by the tail.